Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. It's really good to be here. And I want to set up where we're going and, um, and kind of give you a, an overview. Um, and there's, my heart is full, and I just have prayed all afternoon that this will start a journey for you. That, that's what I'm going to try to do is start a, um, a, a journey of you understanding the concepts that are before us. This for me has been 12, it's been my whole life in some sense, but it's been 12 years of what I'm going to specifically unfold tonight and trying to wrap my brain around the work of God in my own life. Um, and as, as these truths became um, clearer to me, it, I'll tell you where we're going, okay? This is thoroughly scriptural. So that's first and foremost. The, this, the scriptures are authority for this. We're gonna, you're going to see this clearly in scripture. But what made this... Uh, functional in my life, and, and, and still functional, I'm, not, I'm still early on the journey of what we're going to talk about tonight, is that we're going to stand at the intersection of gospel theology and then philosophy, secular philosophy, and a little bit of psychology. And when I say psychology, I don't mean theoretical psychology. Uh, I mean um, how our psyche works. And um, so when we use the idea of identity, that, you know, that word is not particularly in Scripture. That's really a 21st century concept that will unfold, but it is thoroughly a scriptural concept. And so we're, we're going to take biblical truth. I'm not going to say anything new tonight. I'm not going to say anything that, is, that you don't already know. I'm going, I'm going to say it in, in, with different terms and, and hopefully turn the prism a little bit and let you see it through a lens um, that when I saw it through this lens, it was like, oh, it was like a light bulb came on that never went off. It, and suddenly it illuminated a part of my life that I had never really considered, okay? Um, and I, I really believe we're going to talk about a work that God does, frankly, in everybody's life. Okay, so I want you to begin with me in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and while you're going to Mark 8, I want to thank uh, Ryan for just giving me this opportunity to speak to the staff, to speak to the families, to preach in church this morning, and then to do this tonight. We've talked about something like this for several years that just didn't work, and then this year um, he extended the opportunity, and we locked it in, and I'm especially excited about this. This is the... I've done this in, in settings with pastors um, and with our church a little bit. I did a series about this, but I've never done what we're going to do tonight. And I've never had a pastor that said, you know, we bought a quantity of the books and we're going to hand them out. I'm not a good salesman of my own books. Um, I hope they'll be a blessing to you. I hope this one will be a blessing to you. We're just going to skim the surface of it tonight, and I hope it will compel you to, to do a deeper dive into, um, into the book and into the topic. So Mark chapter 8. Uh, beginning in verse 34. 
And when he had called, this is Jesus, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. Now, the background of this, um, if you track Jesus' ministry chronologically, which is a little bit difficult to do if you're just reading straight through the Gospels, because the Gospel writers were not trying to tell the chronological story as much as they were trying to give us vignettes and accounts that validated the identity of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. Um, and, and so, but the chronology generally, I'm just talking broadly, is that for the better part of the first two years of Jesus' ministry, he was ministering around the Sea of Galilee and in that region. It's not to say he didn't go south. In fact, when, when he started his ministry, he made a trip south and he was in Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple at the very beginning uh, around the time of his temptation, right when he started. But then the next long season, he was up in Capernaum and in that region and, and a little bit north. And his message was primarily believe. I mean, you can, you can look at like the first nine chapters of Luke just over and over and over, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. It's a simple faith, a simple gospel, a simple receive salvation message. And um, now they, you know, by the thousands, people were believing in Jesus and following him, but they were believing in a Jesus, they, they were believing in their version of Messiah. They all had a script that they were bringing into that belief. So yeah, we believe you're the Messiah, and their version of that script was, that version of that script was, you're going to go in and deliver us from Roman tyranny and reestablish Israel and set up a new kingdom, geopolitical. You're, you're going to make Israel great again. That, that's what they thought Jesus was going to do, okay? And I, I'm glad you're laughing. Um, you know, whatever your political ideas are, that, they had this real nationalistic political idea that Jesus was going to be their next kingdom Okay, so that's what they're, they're believing in the Messiah, but that even his disciples, that's what they expect the Messiah to be, okay? And I think there's some, there's some strand of truth in that still in our lives today. We accept Jesus with an idea of who we think he's going to be to us, what he's going to make happen in our lives. We don't fully grasp what following him is all about, okay? Well, over time, over two years, um, as Jesus was not the conquering revolutionary, the crowds began to dwindle. And there comes this moment where he takes his disciples up to uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is where he had the conversation with them about, who do you say that I am? And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the nature of that conversation was, um, he started to Change the message, his message, his central theme started to shift. For instance, the last year of his ministry, that's when he started teaching in parables. Why? Remember how he said, I, uh, I'm teaching you in parables lest they should understand? Well, who's they? The people that had already rejected him. And so the unrepentant unbelief 
in their hearts, he didn't want to heap more truth on them that they would give an account for in the judgment. So he began to speak in parables. His message shifted from believe to follow. Okay? The message of belief, salvation, it's free. It's free for the taking. The message of follow is it's costly. Discipleship is going to cost you everything. And that's how the message starts to shift, okay? And this is one of the places of multiple. In each gospel, there's an account where later in his ministry, he starts looking at his followers. By the way, track Jesus' eyes when you're reading the gospels. If you don't, and that's really true for the whole Bible, if you don't know who God is talking to, then you're going to have a hard time applying the Bible to your life, okay? Because there's sometimes, and the writers are very clear, he said to the Pharisees, okay, so now you know he's speaking to unbelieving skeptics who want him dead. And then he turns to the crowd, and he speaks to the crowd. So now you know he's speaking to um, kind of seekers that, are, that like his miracles and his tricks, but they're undecided on his, on his deity. And then he speaks to his disciples, and sometimes to one or two crowds at the same time. And, and when he's looking at his disciples, he's saying stuff like, follow me, take up your cross, lose your life, okay? Um, so track his eyes, and his message shifts towards something deeper, something of loss, something of losing yourself, and this is going to cost you if you're really going to follow me, okay? Now, um, we're going to come back to this particular passage, uh, but I want to read a couple of other places where Jesus says something similar. John 12, 25, he that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Luke 9, he said unto them, he said unto them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Matthew 10, he that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now, let me back up from these texts for a minute and, and, and start with a story. And this is the opening story of the book. Um, I, we lived in Southern California for um, 22 years. My second son, Larry, was in his senior year. I was just coming out of um, my battle with cancer. And I, had, I, had, I, I was about six or seven or eight months out of my last treatment. It was Larry's senior year. And I had these traditions that we would make some memories when our kids are seniors, just dad and son, dad and daughter. And so this particular day, we had blocked off, well, actually, we had blocked off like three days. We had reserved a, a hotel room, we had rented gear, and we were going up to Big Bear to ski, just me and him. And so we drive up, we check in at night on a Wednesday night, we wake up Thursday morning, we get our gear, we get out um, on, the, on the slope, we, we ride the lift up. Larry has skied a couple times in his life, snowboarded, I should say. I'm skiing. Um, I haven't skied since before I had cancer, so I was kind of weak, and, and my muscle mass was kind of diminished. So I got on those skis. I immediately felt like I was kind of on matchsticks. I got a little bit ahead of Larry. First run down, it may have been the second run. I can't remember for sure. But I got a little bit ahead of Larry over a ridge, and I just decided to pull over and wait for him. And several minutes go by, and Larry's not there, and and 15 minutes now, and, I, and he's not there. And I'm just about ready to pop my skis off and start walking back up the hill when here he comes over the ridge, and he comes down to me, and he sits down in the snow, 
And I thought he was adjusting his gears, binding or something, and he sat down and he said, I fell really hard and I think I hit my head. I said, are you okay? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he was just kind of sitting there and he goes, yeah, I think I hit my head. And he said, I have a really bad headache. I said, well, are you sure you're okay? He said, yeah, I'm okay. And then he said, hey, Dad, how long have we been here? Now, Larry's kind of a kidder, so I thought he was messing with me. And I said, what do you mean, how long have we been here? We just got here. We've been here. I said, how long do you think we've been here? He goes, it feels like a couple days to me. I said, Larry, are you messing with me? He goes, no. I just can't remember how long we've been here. So that's when I started to sense, okay, something's wrong. Um, he said, how did we get here? I said, Larry, come on now, this isn't funny. He says, no, really, how did we get here? I don't remember. I said, okay, take your snowboard off. I think you've hurt yourself. I think you've got a concussion, and we need to go to the first aid shack. We're all the way at the top of this run. So, um, so he unlatches his gear, and I, I'm, I put my arm like on his arm. I'm holding him because I don't want him to slip again. And we trudge down the hill holding our gear to the first aid shack. We walk in. I say to the guys, I think he's got a concussion. They say, is he asking repeated questions? He doesn't remember the answers. I said, yes. They said, yep, concussion. You're done. Your ski day is done. You got to go to the ER. So they sent us to the hospital, a small hospital there in Big Bear. Um, where we wait. It's about a four-hour process. Um, we're sitting there. They're going to do a CAT scan. The nurse comes in. She says, he's probably okay. We just have to do a CAT scan, make sure there's no bleeding internally. Um, it's probably just a concussion, mild probably, and we're going to send you home. But right now, he's going to get nuts. He's going to get loopy. He's going to start asking you the same 15 questions over and over and over again. And don't panic. She said, a lot of people panic, and they kind of and I, and, and I said, okay, okay. She said, you might want to write the answers down on a page and give them to him because he's going to keep asking. So um, he'd, sure enough, he left, and we're sitting there for an hour or two, and he keeps asking me the same questions. Why are we here? What are we doing? How did we get here? How long have we been here? What happened? And um, based on their assurance, this is going to sound insensitive, I just started making up stories <laughs> just for my own entertainment value, you know? And I'm videoing his answers to the stories and sending the videos to the family, and they're laughing, you know. And so it's like, I, I, how did we get here? We, we, we drove up yesterday. What happened? We're, we're at the doctor. What happened to me? And the first time I said, Larry, you ran, you ran into a, a, a truck. You just ran right into a truck. I did? You know, and then one time I said, you ran over a lady that's old enough to be your grandmother. I did. Is she okay? You know, and then I said, well, I said you took a jump and you flipped. And he's like, I did? Did I get a lot of air? I was like, yeah, you looked amazing, you know, but you fell and hurt yourself. I just told him a bunch of different stories, and every, it didn't matter because three minutes later, he didn't remember it. And I'd tell him another one. Um, so they did a, a CAT scan. They, they cleared him. They released us. We were hungry. We went to the steakhouse, the Sizzler down the road. We're sitting there. We're at Sizzler. We just spent four hours at the hospital. We're sitting at Sizzler waiting for our food. He looks at me and he goes, man, my head hurts. I think I must have fallen and hit my head. I said, did you? I said, are you okay? Yeah. I said, do you need to go to the doctor? No, no, no. I don't need to go to the doctor. He didn't remember. We were at the hospital for four hours. I said, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, we're fine. And um, how, I, I, he said, dad, this was really fun. Thanks for bringing me skiing. 
just out of curiosity, I said, Larry, how many days did we ski? He goes, I, I, I think we've been here like two or three days. I said, well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Because <laughs> it was as expensive as two or three days, I can tell you that. All 10 minutes of it. Um, and so we get in the car after, after eating, and we're driving out a Big Bear, and we're doing those switchbacks coming out down into kind of the San Bernardino area. And as we're just outside of town, I, I look to the side. Larry's in the passenger seat. And he's normally a real calm and collected, not an emotional individual. But his eyes are filled with tears, and he is almost hyperventilating. He's having like a panic attack. And I pulled the car over very quickly, and I said, Larry, what's wrong? And he said, I can't remember anything. And in that moment, my heart just kind of broke for him. I'm thinking, how disorienting, how displacing would it be to not be able to remember anything? He said, Dad, I don't remember, I don't remember what I did last week. I don't remember how we got here. I don't remember anything about our recent, my recent life. I don't, re I don't remember anything. And he's, he starts to cry. And he's, and he's panicked. And I said, Larry, I'm trying to tell him, you're going to be okay. Your memory's going to come back. But what if it doesn't? And, and he's asking me, Dad, Dad, what do I do? I can't remember anything. What do I do? What do I do? And in this moment, I'm fishing. I don't know how to help my son, who frankly is like in a psychological free fall. He has lost his ability He's lost all of his anchor points. He's lost all of his reference points for reality, what is true, things we take for granted subconsciously all day, okay? He doesn't have those anchor points anymore, and I'm struggling for a way to help him remember. The, the outcome of the moment was that he kept saying, Dad, Dad, Dad. And so I grabbed his shoulders and I turned him towards me and I said, Larry, look at me. Do you know who I am? He was a little bit irritated by the question. <laughs> yeah, you're dad, dad. Like, I've got bigger problems. <laughs> and I said, I know who you are. And you don't right now, but I do. And I've got you. And I'm taking you home. And so this is where the title of the book came from. I said, stop trying to remember. It's not going to get you anywhere. Trying to remember who you are doesn't get you anywhere. I said, put your head back and rest. If you know me, I know who you are. Okay, so now you know where we're going. All right? Kind of gave away the whole punchline. Um, so... Hold on to that sense, that story, and let's go back to Mark 8, and let's break it down for a few minutes. Jesus is talking about loss of self. Mark 8, 34. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Okay. Now, we think of this in surface ways. Okay, we think of this in behavioral ways. We think of this in little, trite, trivial, like, I'll give you your way instead of my way, okay? But this goes much deeper than that as Jesus continues to unfold. 
Take up your cross and follow me. Whosoever, now this is a key, we're going to unfold this verse. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Now, in the New Testament, there are three words, Greek words, that come into our English language as the word life. They all mean different things, okay? I'm going to give them to you real quick. The word bios is your physical, it's your physiology. It's like where we get the word biology, okay? Um, the word zoe is um, like, a, like the life that God gives us, okay? It's, it's God's life in us. Um, and then the word suke is our sense of self. It's, our, it's where we get the word psyche. It's our inner self, okay? It's in the New Testament referred to as the inner man. Okay, the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. It's the renewing of our mind, Romans 12. I'm going to kind of extemporaneously throw a lot of New Testament references in here. I just want you to understand we're going to be grabbing a lot of scriptures as we go because these themes go throughout the New Testament, okay? Um, but, but the idea that Jesus is driving at, he's not talking about losing your physical life. He's not saying go out and be martyred. That's what it takes to be saved. Like, if you'll go lose your life physically, then, then that'll save you. Martyrdom is, a, is surely an honorable thing if that's God's call. But, but in this sense, that's not what he's referring to. He's not referring, the word wasn't bios. The word wasn't zoe. The word he used was suke. So what he's saying is, if you will lose... Your deepest sense of who you think you are, um, then you will find out who you really are. But if you try to construct and maintain your own sense of who you are, then you will lose your suke, okay? Um, so this idea of suke is the same as our modern idea of identity. And I'm going to define, define the idea of identity with you because if you pick up 10 books on our identity in Christ, and they're all fine, they're all good, they're all great, wonderful and helpful books, but there's, there's eight or 10 out there that basically follow the same roadmap, roadmap, and what they do is they go through the New Testament, they grab... Um, they grab the names of Christians. They grab the synonyms for Christians from the New Testament. I'm adopted. I'm a child of God. I'm sealed. I'm redeemed. I'm justified. And, and every chapter is who I am, right? I'm declared righteous. I'm sealed. I'm made new. I'm a new creature. And all these wonderful things that are, that are wonderful to understand. And I've studied them, and I've read about them, and I've heard them preach my whole life. My trouble was, I could tell you who I am in Christ in terms and in theory and in intellectual uh, presentation. I could unfold it for you. I could teach it to you. But it had never really moved from my head to my heart. Okay. I could tell you who I was but I had never deeply experienced it. And I'll, you'll understand why in a few minutes, okay? Um, so what Jesus is talking about here is what happened in the life of every single God follower in Scripture. Okay, you can track it 
all the way back to Abraham and all the way forward, okay? What I do in the book is I focus on the end of Jesus' ministry, the disciples, the collapse of their dreams and ideas, and the resurrection, and then the realization, the oh, the aha, the light bulb moment of Jesus is bigger and better and more unbelievable than we ever thought he was. And this isn't about a kingdom on earth. This isn't about a geopolitical. This isn't about the nation of Israel. This isn't about us ruling in Jerusalem with him temporarily. This is about something much bigger and much better. And we're not at all who we thought we were. And he's not at all who we thought he was. And the dawning of this in their lives, the dawning of this was transformational. Okay, so that's the whole idea of stop trying is, we are, we are either trying to build an identity ourselves or we are trying to become who God says we are to, um, to the point of real discouragement where often we'll give up. Okay, so let me um, shift gears and let's define some terms, okay? Let's define the term identity. And this is why I say this is where scripture, scripture meets um, philosophy, don't be afraid of that, by the way. As long as Scripture is the authority, truth is always true, okay? Um, and Christianity is the truest philosophy of life, okay? Um, so identity is your deepest sense of self. The Bible also uses the word soul to reference this, or heart, or self, or inner man, okay? Here's another way to say it. It's who I understand myself to be. Okay, um, some things about identity I want you to know. It's subconscious. So before I began to study this stuff, I never thought about my identity. It just never even occurred to me. It's something that operates as a subtext to our everyday living. It's subconscious. It's, it's more so than conscious. But here's the thing about it. You have an identity, and you're giving it perpetual attention. It's, 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 like breath, it's like breathing. You don't know you're breathing right now, but you are. Your heart is beating. You don't, you're not making it beat. It's just beating. You are always living out of an identity. And by virtue of that fact, you're always cultivating or constructing or working to maintain or protect that identity. Always. We all are. Okay? Um, who you think you are who others say you are, who you believe others or God expects you to be. And there's, there's, oh goodness, in the book I think I list 15 or 20 different factors that are components of your identity. And we live in a world where this is mainstream. Like this is every day in the news, every day in the entertainment industry. It's, it's the subtext of every Disney movie. We'll see that in a few minutes. It's, it's the main narrative of our culture, okay? The whole expressive individuality uh, narrative. Determine your own gender, self-identify. All of this is identity narrative, okay? And it goes way back into several hundred years of philosophy, which we won't really have time to unpack a lot of that. But you have an identity, it is subconscious. It's always working at the core. This is um, keep thy heart with all diligence, 
For out of it are the issues of life, like every issue of your life is lived out of and flows out of this core. This is your core being. It's, it's psychological, which means it is, uh, that's suke, the word. It, 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 there's, there's a spiritual uh, component to it. It's, there's emotional component to it. There's an intellectual, rational component to it. And there's a um, volitional or a will component to it. Your heart is your mind, your will, and your emotions, okay? Which is, you know, your, the, the, subtotal, the sum total of your, of your psyche or your psychology, okay? You're always cultivating, always constructing, always maintaining or securing your identity. Our greatest fear, our deepest loss and depression usually happens when events in life do to us psychologically what the ski trip did to Larry phys physically. Okay? Like Larry had a collision that jolted his sense and understanding of who he is. Life has ways of undoing the subconscious parts of our lives where we have defined ourselves, okay? So <clears throat> the world is constantly telling you how to form your identity and how to tie off your psyche to stable things, okay, to, to these factors. And it could be your ethnicity. It could be your gender. It could be your, your education. It could be your abilities or your achievements. It's usually achievements. It could be your economic security. It could be your relational world. Who likes you? Who loves you? Who affirms you? Where do you fit? Where do you belong? All of these, by the way, none of them are inherently sinful. It's not sinful to value your ethnicity. God's not colorblind. He's creative. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with valuing your ethnicity. There's something wrong with idolizing your ethnicity. See, we take good blessings, good gifts of God, my abilities, my achievements, my accomplishments, my family, my marriage, uh, my romance, my this or that. We take these good gifts and we subconsciously become defined by them. And the problem, the inerrant problem is that is we can lose these things. Okay. So whatever you tie yourself to psychologically for a sense of meaning, for a sense of significance, sense of value, a sense of love and acceptance, whatever you tie your heart to, if it's, if it's losable, if it's changeable, if it's fragile, then you are just one heartbeat, one rejection, one slight, one racial slur away from the loss of your identity, okay? And from a disorientation of, wait, who am I now? Okay, so what happened to get me asking these questions <clears throat> was, first of all, a cancer diagnosis. So 22 years of, of joyful marriage and ministry and growing up a family in a healthy church, and suddenly I'm laying on my back in bed, and I kind of <clears throat> subconsciously, not even knowing I was doing it, if you ask me, at 38 or 39, I have friends in here that knew me at that time of my life. Um, I have a lot of regrets of that era of life, but I would have genuinely said, genuinely said, I'm serving the Lord, I'm trying my best. What I didn't know is, subconsciously, I was kind of anchor. there were anchor points of my identity in that. And it happens to all of us, okay? Suddenly, everything changes. 
And now I'm the cancer guy, which nobody wants to be the cancer guy. Um, and everybody that sees me, used to be, people would see me, hey, how you doing? Was, I was a happy person. Then they see me, they're like, oh, how are you? And I'm like, I was happy until I saw you, but now I'm depressed. <laughs> everybody suddenly changed around me, you know? And, and it, it, I was like, I don't want this. I don't want this. This isn't me. I help people with cancer. I don't do cancer. This is not who I am. And God said, no, this is my assignment for you. It's not who you are, but it's my assignment for you. Wow. It's an assignment? Doesn't define me, but it is a, a, an opportunity. It's a stewardship. But all of a sudden, I'm in bed. My first question was, is God mad at me? That's bad theology. See, God got mad at Jesus in your place. Like, if Jesus paid it all, then how do you reconcile that? So I got more to pay, so cancer is the way to, like God's sitting up in heaven going, okay, give him cancer right there. See, see he just crossed the line, give him cancer. That's too much. Jesus paid for most of it, but he, now he needs cancer. That's how we think. I said, God, is this punishment? No, Jesus took your punishment. Is this chastening? Sure, every painful thing in life is chastening. That word means nurture. I'm cultivating growth in your life. Of course it's chastening. Don't marry punishment and chastening. They're not the same. Okay, that's, a, that's another conversation. But the second question after, like, God, are you upset at me? The second question that comes to my mind is just, who am I now? I can't lead singing in service. I can't be Mr. Youth Pastor. I can't be a good husband or father. I'm in bed throwing up and so drugged up. I'm sleeping 12 hours. I'm gaining weight because of all the steroids. It's, I, I look like Uncle Fester. My hair was falling out, dark circles under my eyes. When you see a picture of me of that era, I truly looked like Uncle Fester. Some people are trying to make me feel good and say Bruce Willis. It, it was nowhere near Bruce Willis. <laughs> it was Uncle Fester, okay? Um, and we laughed a lot about cancer, and we, we, we journeyed through it humorously, but I was having a deep displacement. God, who am I now? There was like phase two after cancer. I'm trying to reengage my life, and God's going, no, your call, your call is to follow me. Follow me. Lose it all. Walk away. People don't understand this. Leaving California for Connecticut was much, much more difficult than cancer. Cancer I didn't have a choice in. Cancer, I didn't have to walk away from my home and my friends and everybody that I knew and the life that I knew. Connecticut, I was choosing to walk away. And it was like this, it was truly a Mark 8, just, just walk away, follow me. And it was a terrible death experience. And then I got to Connecticut and for two, two ah, for about a year, the church was uh, just a depressed state. And I would get up in the morning and I knew I needed to go to work, but I didn't want to go to the church because it was depressing. The one secretary that was there really didn't like me. <laughs> the building needed a million dollars worth of work, and I didn't have any money to do any work on it. So I just went to Dunkin' Donuts every morning. <laughs> Not because the donuts are good. They're terrible, but the coffee is really good. The people were cheerful. The lights were bright. Uh, there was TV on. The, 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 flo uh, the walls were, were painted cheerfully. And I would sit there, and for the first two hours... Uh, I told the staff while Taylor Swift was playing on the radio, you know, stream, I was just sitting there moping, complaining to God while winter was descending on Connecticut. Slushy, cold, icy, lonely mornings. And I would complain to God for an hour, God, who am I? Where am I? Why am I here? What happened? I don't know these people. I, I don't want to be here. 
It was terrible. But those conversations with God, God just kept saying to my heart, I know who you are. I'm breaking down who you thought you were. I'm taking away all the fragile places you had anchored yourself. And I'm going to show you who, who I am and how I know you. Okay? So this identity, deepest sense of self, subconscious, perpetual attention, we're maintaining it. We're tying off our, our hearts in ways we don't know to things that we can lose. Okay? So part of my identity, I'm Dana's husband. You tell me, is that permanent or is it breakable and losable and fragile? I know what you think you should answer. You know, you're going, oh, that's a trick question. The covenant is lifetime. I get that. But can it change? Absolutely it can. Some of you have experienced that on one level or another. One of us can abandon the other. One of us can be unfaithful. One of us can die. So if my supreme, my highest identity is I'm Dana's husband, if I lose Dana, I lose myself. I lose who I, who I know myself to be. And I will be asking the question, who am I now? Who am I really? Okay. So this, is your, this, is, this is your identity. And life has a way of bringing us to these moments of loss that are who am I now questions. All right. Now, I want to turn a corner. Um, we'll take a break at about 6.05. There are only three ways to form an identity. Most of us in this room are ping-ponging between two. Okay? The whole purpose of tonight is to introduce the third. All right? And to send you on a journey of growing in that third. Okay? But to understand the third, we have to unfold. And every young person, I'm so glad there's a lot of young people in the room, because you will more naturally grasp this than somebody in their 50s or 60s or 70s in the room. I think, although it's applicable to everybody, I think the young people almost speak this language, okay? So the first way the world has taught us for, for thousands of years to formulate identity is what I'm going to call, or what philosophy calls, a traditional identity, okay? And I'm going to give each of these a simple definition that you have got to unfold in your own life I'm going to open a door to a room in your mind that you may have never stepped into, okay? But uh, this room has a lot of things for you to explore. A traditional identity is others define me, okay? I'm defined by others. A traditional identity is looking outside of myself for definition, and for significance. Um, I explain in the book that your identity, I should have said this earlier, is where you look for acceptance, security, and significance. You might want to write those three words down. Acceptance, security, and significance. Acceptance, who loves me? Security, what most anchors me? When life shakes, significance, why am I here? What is my purpose? What, what value do I have? Okay? Now, when I say a traditional identity looks outward, and the simple definition is others define me, 
here's how this unfolds. We all came into life with other people telling us who we are. I am the son of Lance and Joe Schmidt. I was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1969. I'm the grandson of Edwin and Kathleen Bird and Charles and Ann Schmidt. That's who I am at birth. And my life formed from there. And every year, new components of that identity were realized. I'm a first grader. I'm a fifth grader. I'm a brother. I'm the brother of Matt and Mark. I'm a boyfriend. I'm a soccer player. I'm a college student. I'm a fiance. I'm a husband, okay? Life just, just goes. And when you're sitting in class, you're an A student. You're a C student. You're a D student. You're a failing student. By, but by whose definition? Like, who says? Someone else says. Your teacher says. The school, uh, the school system says. Um, I'm... I'm a first-string basketball player. I'm a second-string I'm a bench warmer. By whose standard? The coaches. I'm a good son. I'm a rebellious son. By whose standard? My parents. Um, I'm a faithful church member. I'm a giver. I'm a servant. I'm a team leader. I'm a growth group te teacher, whatever. By whose definition? The pastor, the church leaders. So traditional identity is, I mean, there's a million systems, man-made systems. Your job, your education, uh, what, what, what do we, when we introduce ourselves to one another, what's one of the first questions we ask? What do you do? A traditional identity is fundamentally defined by what you do. Now this ought to start getting you thinking in terms of gospel because in, a gospel, in your relationship with Jesus, you are not fundamentally defined by what you do. You're fundamentally defined by what he has done. Okay. So this is the way the world works, traditional identity, but this is not the way God works. It's the way every man-made system has to work. Okay, it's, and you want to write some descriptors down. Um, there's, there's good and bad woven into this. It's not wholly wicked. It's not wholly good. It's, you're going to see in a minute, it's insufficient. Okay, it's how the world needs to work, but it does not meet the core needs of your heart, and it never will. Okay, and the world is waking up to this, um, and, and kind of demonizes the traditional identity. So it is others-oriented, which means it's who I ought to be, it's who I should be, emphasis on ought or should, it's who I have to be, it's who others expect me to be. Now, this is honorable in the sense that it's others-focused. And it's honorable in the sense that it calls me to live sacrificially for others, okay? So those service members in Afghanistan serving their country right now are finding identity in I'm a Marine, I'm a patriot, 
I'm serving, I'm sacrificing for my country. So the traditional identity teaches us to do what is most honorable and most valuable for others. So that's the good part of it, okay? That's the strength of it. It honors community. It honors family. It honors uh, sacrifice for others. So in that sense, we grow up being commissioned by our parents and pastors and teachers and leaders and coaches to strive to improve and to grow and to be better, which is good, okay? To, to steward our lives, to live honorably, to bless and serve others. It's others-focused. It's living up to others' systems. How is it weak or insufficient? How does this bite us? Okay, well, probably one of the biggest words is that it's conditional. It's conditional because if you succeed, traditional identity works only if you're good. If you're bad, you're out. Like you're rejected, you're a failure. You're out of the club, you don't fit. If you don't follow the pattern, if you don't fit in the box that your community has shaped for you, your family, your church, your school, others, if you don't fit in that box, if you don't look like they expect you to look, if you break out of that box in any way, you're out, okay? So it's conditional. On your best behavior, good job, we love you, we like you, you're in. Gold stars, straight A's, you get the job, you start, you're the starting player, you're in. You got the bonus, you got the promotion. Um, but if you fail... You're going to lose your identity. You're going to lose the affirmation that those structures gave you. Okay, so it's conditional. Secondly, and this kind of tags with this, it's performance based. It's based on your ability to perform up to the standard. It's performance based. So it's driven by what you do, what you, how good are you performing? Now, the re reason I say I'm just kicking you down on a journey is that you've got to unpack this in your life and let the Spirit of God show you how this creeps in subconsciously, even, even into a church context, okay? We become defined by what we do and how we fit our performance. We reduce the glory and the holiness of God to a list of about eight or ten things that we can do. And we think we're good. We pat ourselves on the back because I listen to this music, I read this Bible, I cut my hair this way, I wear this to church, I go this many times a week, I'm this, 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 and this. God is lucky to have me. <laughs> and what we end up doing, even in a church context, is subconsciously, Relating to God and one another through this lens of traditional identity. So the people that are the most active, the most faithful, the most giving, the highest performers in the church are the most affirmed, the most loved, the most accepted. And the low performers generally don't last. And if you get saved in a traditional identity church, you better, like, you got like a three-month window. 
Like within about three months, you better get the haircut, you better change your dress, you better stop listening to your junk music, you better quit every bad habit, and you better, you better, you better get the right Bible, the right behaviors. If, if you got about three months, and if you don't comply within about three months, you're going to start getting that, that cold. And what ends up happening is it, ah, I'm going to get off track if I'm not careful. What ends up happening is we witness to somebody of the unconditional love of Jesus. And then they get saved. And we bring them into a body rife with conditional love. It's like, aren't you glad you were born into grace? Now get to work. And we, we, we bring them out of the bondage of sin into the bondage of performance-based acceptance. And it's incoherent. Because in their mind, they're going, wait a minute, I thought you told me in the gospel that Jesus accepts me unconditionally, but now you're telling me I've got to cross all these, I've got to pass this test to fit here? And it's incoherent. I'm a little bit ahead of myself, but... Conditional, performance-based. Here's the other, the, the other thing about traditional identity. It's losable, it's fragile, it's vulnerable. Push this through the grid of abuse. What does a victim become in this system? In a traditional identity structure where you have been abused your whole life or where you've been the victim of sexual abuse, what are you? Who are you? You're a victim. The abuse defines you because what somebody else did to you defines you. The wound, you're defined by your wounds. In a traditional identity, you're defined by your success. You're defined by your performance. You're defined by your failure or by your wounds. And in these systems, if you have a good life, traditional identity works for, this, for the high achievers, the high grades, the high performers, the, the really moral people, the ones that can have their devotions the most. For struggling people like me that miss days on their devotions and some days forget to pray and wake up selfish and argue with their wives, and you know, for, for struggling people like me, traditional identity just reminds us over and over that we are losers. There's some sense of, of me being here. <laughs> I told Ryan, I try to speak transparently because... I, I have this goal that if, if I can help you see what a loser I really am, then you'd be like, well, I'm not nearly that bad. <laughs> and there's hope for you then, right? Um, and that's kind of what we do with Scripture. Like, like Peter was so bad, he just denied Jesus altogether. Like, you know, we, so if there's hope for Peter, if there's hope for Zacchaeus, if there's hope for Matthew, if there's hope, oh, goodness, there's hope, if there's hope for Paul, there's hope for me. Okay. So... This is losable and fragile. If I'm performing well, I've got a strong identity. If I stop performing, I lose it. I have a weak identity. If I have been well-loved my whole life by others, I have a strong identity. If I've been abandoned, neglected, abused, or hurt, I have a weak identity. So it's a trap, okay? It's a trap. And the failed and the and the hurt generally really run from churches that push the gospel through a traditional identity structure because 
They can't perform up to that metric that fast, okay? And they, they, they can't resonate with, they can't identify with your feelings of success and affirmation because you've been so loved your whole life and you've been so successful your whole life and things have just worked out for you. But there's a whole lot of people whose lives have been burdened and broken and, and buffeted them their whole life and they struggle with a, with, a, with a weak identity, okay? So traditional identity is others define me. Um, let me give you this one and then we'll take a quick break. Um, let, me, let, me, let me say a couple more things about this and then we'll take a break. Um, The, the deepest problem with this identity structure is that it completely steamrolls over your individuality. This is why the world is today and, and the younger generation is growing up despising these structures because these structures say, we don't care what you want to do. We don't care what your dreams are. Go to this college, do this, become this. And, and it's deceptive, but there is in all of our hearts this strand of in, this sense of injustice in that consideration. Wait a minute. I get, I get living for others, sacrificially serving, honor, all that. But what about who I am? Can I be me? Okay, and traditional identity says, no, you don't get to be you. You get to be who everybody tells you you have to be. Um, one of the best illustrations is the movie, um, It's a Wonderful Life. George, what's his name? Bailey. Bailey. George Bailey. His dad runs the, you know, bank and whatever, mortgage company, the, the loan company. He wants to get out of town and go do great things. He's got big plans. But he's saddled with the family business, and the family expects him to be responsible and stay and sacrifice himself for the family business. So the whole movie is an identity narrative. Does George get to go be who he wants to be, or does he have to be who everybody tells him he has to be? And the whole idea is he's struggling with a loss at, the, at one point in the movie of, my life has been no difference whatsoever. I didn't get to be who I wanted to be. And, and uh, the traditional identity narrative is all woven into it. So it destroys individuality. Traditional identity doesn't care who you want to be. Okay. Um, the outcomes of a traditional identity are inevitably one of two poles. If you're successful, you unavoidably become proud of your success. You're either proud that you achieved it, or you're proud that you were so good that God gave it to you. <laughs> okay, however you phrase it, like, look what I did, I'm self-made, that's the secular version, or look how good I was and all the, boy, God's been good to me. That's kind of code language sometimes for look how good I was. You must not have been as good as me because he didn't bless you like he blessed me, right? I was having lunch with a guy one time and he, I was telling him about the cancer battle, he was asking me questions, and he said something, he didn't realize how he was insulting me when he said it. But he said, I just hope God will teach me those, I hope he'll teach I hope he won't have to give me cancer to teach me something like that. I'm like, oh, I see what you say, what you think. You think I'm so stupid that I couldn't learn it any other way that he just decided to afflict me, which is not how God works, okay? That's beside the point. But 
you'll either get full of pride on one hand and then judgmentalism. You're not as good as me because look, at you're not as blessed as me. That's exactly how the Pharisees thought. Or you will become despairing that you can't live up to and, um, and you'll, you'll, you'll get into a give up mindset. You will, if, on the success end, you'll get exhausted of trying to keep everybody happy. On the failure end, you'll get so despairing that you run away from these systems. You liberate yourself from them. Which is exactly what the prodigal son did, which maybe we'll come back to that story in a minute. So, traditional identity, others define me. Before we take a break, does, did, I'm going to take three minutes. Does anybody have a question? I just want to make sure I'm making sense. Okay. Um, whether we know it or not, this is how the world around us works, whether we've all ever thought about it. Remember, it's not evil. These systems are not inherently evil. They're just insufficient. They're, they're, they're conditional. They're losable. They're breakable. We can fail them. Um, so they don't really um, deeply define us. And if, if we let them define us, we're, we're going to come into a collapse. We're going to come into loss. So in the next session, we'll unfold the next two identities. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.